Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. He looked weak, helpless, and humiliating, to be honest. He was out by himself, out in the desert, in the heat, sitting on the ground, moping around. He's sitting under a tree, and he had all but given up. He cries out to the Lord. It is enough. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. Helpless, weak. This is the great prophet Elijah. <laughs> Questionably, not at his finest. What had led this man of faith, this, this prophet who has been held up throughout the church, throughout the life of God's people, what led him to this place of despair and humility and helplessness? Well, I think we need a little context to understand what brought him so low. A few days earlier, Elijah had been in a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. This was the time after King David, after Solomon, the, the, the kingdom of Israel had been divided between the north and the south, Israel the north and Judah the south. And at this time, the people of Israel, of that nation of God, were wavering in their faith. Should we worship Yahweh, the Lord, or should we worship Baal and serve him? Baal being a false god, being... Someone not from the land of Israel, a God from the Canaanites. And so Elijah went before the people of Israel. He had called them all to be brought together. So it was a massive crowd. And he said, all right, let's see. Let's find out. Let's put this to the test. And so at that time, it was Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. One Elijah, 450 prophets of Baal. And he said this, here's the test, here's the challenge, if you're up for it. Let's both of us, will build altars. And on that altar, we'll, we'll put a bull. And we will prepare the altar, but one thing we won't do, we won't set fire to the bull. And then you 
can call upon your God to send fire down and consume the offering. And then I will call upon my God to send fire down and consume the offering. And whichever offering is consumed, that's the true God. Deal? And the 450 prophets of Baal said, deal. And so they do just that. And they create the altar and they put the slain bull upon it. And then they, they start dancing around it and calling out, hear us, Baal, hear us, Baal. Come to us. Take this offering. And this whole time, the 450 prophets of Baal are dancing around and enchanting. And Elijah, you can see him standing off to the side. <laughs> Everything okay over there? Seems like you guys are having a little trouble. Oh, don't worry. Um, maybe, maybe Baal, maybe he's, he's just meditating right now. Or, you know what, I don't know, maybe, he's, maybe he went away. Maybe he's on a journey, took a trip. He's on vacation. Yeah, okay. Or maybe, he's, maybe he took a nap. A little snooze. It's all right. Maybe, maybe Bale, maybe he had to go to the bathroom. And they kept dancing, and they kept chanting. And it got to the point where when that didn't work, they start cutting themselves with swords and they're bleeding profusely, thinking that if they somehow sacrifice themselves, that they will invoke Baal's presence. And of course, it didn't work. So then Elijah stepped up and said, okay, all right, all right. you had your chance. My turn. Set up the altar. He sets up the altar. He puts 12 stones for the 12 tribes of, of Israel around the altar. And then he puts the, the bowl on the altar. And then he, he says, but you know what? That's, that's not enough. Let's up the ante a little bit. Pour four vessels of water upon the offering. And so the servants went, and they got four jars, and they poured water. And he's like, okay, that's good. Again, more water. Soak it. And so they go, and they get four more jars of water, and they pour it over. That's great. One more time. And they do it again. And it's altar is soaked. Now, there's a lot of things. This is a 3,000 years ago, right? There's a lot of things that we can't relate to. One thing that we can relate to is this. It's hard to start a fire with wet wood. Agreed? Agreed. <laughs> and Elijah steps back. Yahweh, do your thing. Fire from heaven comes down upon the altar and it's consumed. Not just 
the, the bowl, but the wood and the stones, it's all burnt up. And immediately, the people of Israel, who had been around watching this whole charade, they, they, they fall down and they start worshiping Yahweh. We worship Yahweh. And Elijah said, oh, uh, get those 450 guys and let's put them to death because they are false prophets. And Elijah appears victorious and Baal and his prophets are defeated. Then King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the queen, get word of what Elijah had done. And that is where Jezebel says those words that we heard at the beginning of our reading today. If I don't make you like one of them by this time tomorrow, so help me, I don't know, Baal, Yahweh, I'm not sure who she was praying to, probably not Yahweh. And Elijah flees. He's scared for his life. He runs, he hides, he's afraid because she wants to kill him. I think there are a few things that we can learn from Elijah, from his depression, from his loneliness that he's experiencing in this story. We, we are currently going through this series uh, through Advent and Christmas. Christmas feels our loneliness and the companionship of Christ. And so as we look at our lonely hearts, Elijah can give us some insights. Two things in particular I want to bring out. First of all, depression and loneliness is not predictable. Depression and loneliness is not predictable. Think of Elijah here. He had just accomplished the climax of his prophetic ministry. This was his high point. And immediately after that, a word from Jezebel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out. He had just called down fire from heaven. He had just taken out the 450 prophets of Baal. And yet, that word from Jezebel, maybe coupled with some spiritual exhaustion going on in his life, it took him down. We like to think with uh, loneliness and depression that there are some maybe easy under, things that we can understand about why they occur or, or the, the type of people for whom uh, loneliness and depression are a reality. Here's the reality. <laughs> you can one moment accomplish something great and powerful for the Lord, the next moment come crashing down. For myself, sometimes 
I'm able to preach a decent sermon, <laughs> and people are able uh, say, that spoke to me, Pastor. You know when you can pray for me and for your pastors? This isn't just me. This is pastors in general. Uh, Monday. <laughs> I've heard it referred to as, as Bread Truck Monday. That's, that's the uh, day when all the pastors in the world think, I just need to quit and dri start driving a bread truck. <laughs> something simple, something that's not going to be this uh, taxing emotionally, spiritually. The reality is that w when you've had that conversation with a, a friend, a neighbor that, that went so obviously well that th there's no question that God, Jesus, was in it, don't be surprised if right after that, Satan's there slapping you with depression and loneliness and sorrow even. We're in Christmas. The Christmas season. The most wonderful time of the year. Cheer up, it's Christmas time. And yet, I'm guessing that some of you are sitting here today saying, I wish someone would tell my heart. Right? There are all kinds of myths about, here, here's another one about depression regarding age. The elderly are the most depressed and the most lonely in this world. Myth. Survey upon survey shows who is the loneliest generation in this world? It's Gen Z. It's the young ones. It's that loneliness and depression has far more to do with transitions in life and there's a couple when you're uh, trying to figure out which college you're going to, which, which uh, job you're going to, to work at, where, where you're going to live, as you're trying to find a spouse, as you're starting to raise a family. Like, there's transitions that happen there that can lead to depression and, and loneliness. It's sneaky, and it doesn't come at us the way that we might think. Here's the other thing about uh, uh, depression and loneliness that we can learn from the prophet Elijah. That it's normal for the people of God to experience loneliness and depression. Unfortunately, Mental illness of any type has a stigma and whew, in the church as much as anywhere, if not more so. How many of us, uh, when we come to, to church to worship on Sunday mornings, uh, we slap on our Sunday's best and we're not just talking about our threads. <laughs> 
that would put on, slap on that fake plastic smile to cover up the hurt that's happening in our hearts because we think if they find out what I'm really like, they will never want to be with me. It's not true, friends. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah, one of, of two guys who show up with Jesus at the transfiguration. Elijah and Moses. Like, you, you probably a pretty big deal if when Jesus reveals himself in all his glory to John and to James and to Peter on the mountaintop, uh, you're standing there with Jesus. Like, that, that's probably a good thing. And yet, he wanted to die. Lord, take my life. It's enough. It's okay to not be okay. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's right. But it's okay. It's normal for the people of God. And, and I think that sometimes we can get confused as Christians when we start saying things that refer to faith as a, a strength instead of a weakness. What's, what's, hap what's out there today? What's the saying today that's, that's getting pushed around? Um, faith, not fear. I hear that and when I, hear, when I hear that phrase, sometimes I'm afraid that uh, what's behind that is a little pride, a little arrogance, faith as a show of strength. Just believe. It's not that simple, friends. Faith, not fear, it seems to suggest that those two, faith and fear, can't coexist. And yet when we look at the people of God throughout scriptures, throughout church history, they absolutely do exist. Absolutely. <laughs> Talking is hard. And they absolutely do exist together in one heart. When we, under, when, we, when we think of faith, <laughs> yeah, sometimes there's the Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other in the face of the, the opponents, in the face of those godless people. Here I stand. Yeah, sometimes that happens. But I would argue that's the exception, not the norm. That more often than not, uh, our faith, it, it looks like that of Elijah. It's, it's desperate. It's, it's sick. It's, it's, Lord, help. This is what we, we say, right? Uh, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Sometimes that, that phrase just kind of is a throwaway, oh, pious statement, right? What is it saying? It's saying... Help me, Jesus. What do we do when we come together? We start out by confessing our sins in worship. 
That is not a, the, the faithful do not make a statement of a bold strength before their God. No, it's a statement of weakness. I'm broken. I don't love you. I don't love other people the way that I'm supposed to. Jesus, help. This is what it looks like to be a person of faith. It looks weak. It looks helpless. And as Elijah is laying there, sitting, laying, crying, looking weak, Lord says, let me help. The Lord comes to him through an angel at this time. Elijah, looks like you've had a rough few days. Here's a cake, right? You know, a cake makes people feel better, generally speaking, right? Here's a cake. Now take a nap again. <clears throat> Keep resting. All right, here's some more food. Now let's, now let's go. We've got a long journey. And he takes Elijah on this journey for 40 days and 40 nights and takes him to the mountain of God. And in the mountain of God, the Lord is coming to Elijah. And, and the Lord says, stand outside the cave, wait for me. And then we see that there is a, a huge wind, a tornado, a powerful wind that's just ripping apart the mountain, we're told. And the trees are blowing everywhere. And yet, what we're told is that the Lord was not in the wind. And then there comes an earthquake. And the ground is shaking. And there's power being displayed. And yet, the Lord's not in the earthquake. And then there's fire burning up whatever is left. And yet the Lord was not in the fire. Then the ESV, English Standard Version, says this. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. King James Version says, a still, small voice. And Elijah knows. That's the Lord. And he gets up. And he follows the Lord. And he continues on his way, and he goes on to anoint Elisha and Haziel, the king of Syria. And it's still a small voice, though. Isn't that such a, a picture? Several hundred years before the birth of our, Jesus, our Lord Jesus, of how God chooses normally to come to us. Not through fire and wind and earthquakes. And Jesus' day is not uh, in the temple or in the king's palace through Herod the Great. 
not through the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the, in the synagogues, but away from the town in Bethlehem. A little baby being held by his mother. That's our Lord Jesus. Still small voice. That's how God comes over and over to us. It looks weak and it looks powerless. And it looks almost humiliating. But you follow Jesus and his life and you follow to the cross. And through his, his death on the cross... What do we see? We don't see power. We don't see strength. We see death. We see weakness. We see someone who doesn't speak up for himself, doesn't even mutter a word. And when he finally does say something, as he's nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. That's the still small voice coming again. And even Easter, Easter, the day of our, tri of our Lord's triumph, the day of our celebration, the day of victory for Christians. And yet on Easter, what does Jesus do to, to show that he is who he claims to be? How is Jesus revealed? Through the breaking of mere bread. By coming into a room filled with scared men and women and saying, peace be with you. By going to the doubter and saying, here, these, th these are the signs of my weakness. Put your hand here. Put your finger here. You want to know that God is with you? There you go. That is how God can over and over and over reveals himself to us. And it's still the case today. Through simple words, through a pastor who gets caught up on his words and, and isn't as articulate as he, he, as he could be, uh, or, or through bread and wine, as we come to the Lord's table, and uh, bread and wine, simple elements given by a simple person who, uh, as a pastor, like we have a couple people here that take gluten-free wafers, and I know who they are, and every single time we have the Lord's Supper, I forget, <laughs> and I have to be reminded, and, and, I, and yet the Lord's there, and he's coming to the faithful that's the companionship of Christ. The previous congregation that I served down in Arvada, uh, we, we had a member, a woman by the name of Becky, and Becky's, I don't know, say 30 or so, and uh, she, she has uh, significant cognitive delays. So she may be 30, but she probably functions on the level of maybe a five-year-old. And 
when we have communion, I, I, I can see her and her mom coming down the aisle and Becky's cognitive delays uh, that impacted uh, her motor skills so that she was shuffling down, down the aisle and she'd, she'd come up to receive the, the Lord's Supper and she'd have her hands extended and her mom would be helping her as she, as she was walking down so that she didn't fall and, and, and would help her put her hands out. And all Becky could say, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, as I put the wafer in her hand. And that, my friends, that's the power of our God on display. Our God who comes to us in weakness and signs of weakness in a still small voice, who comes to weak people, and yet he gives us life and salvation and hope. And so we, with the faithful before us, pray, Lord, have mercy and come be with us today and forevermore. Amen.